When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, if you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10, that's podcast10, to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Now, to the top analysis of today's crypto markets. Welcome to Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. I'm Ash Bennington. Today, I'm joined by Brett Quick, Head of Government Affairs for the Crypto Council for Innovation. Brett, welcome to Real Vision. Hi, Ash. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you with us for the first time. We have a lot to talk about today to do a comprehensive overview on what's happening from a regulatory and government affairs perspective. But first, I wanted to brief our viewers on a crypto adjacent story this morning. And that, of course, is First Republic trades under the ticker FRC, which has been seized by regulators this morning. Most op of its operations purchased by JP Morgan. Here are the data points you need to know. Uh, those purchased assets include $92 billion in deposits, $173 billion in loans, $30 billion in securities, and FDIC will share JP Morgan's losses uh, in the event that they have them. Uh, this data coming from the Wall Street Journal. Final couple points, I want to contextualize what's happened here uh, for our viewers uh, after those key data points. We've had $100 billion in assets that flew out of First Republic Bank in just a few days following the Silicon Valley Bank collapse. This is the second largest bank failure in U.S. history, right behind WAMU, Washington Mutual, in 2008. Three of the four largest bank failures in U.S. history have occurred in the last 60 days, also via the Wall Street Journal. Brett, that's the backdrop that we find ourselves in today, having this conversation about what's happening from a regulatory perspective. How do you contextualize it? How do you think about it from the crypto slash digital asset perspective? What's happened this weekend and this morning? Yeah, thanks, Ash. I mean, look, the, the banking sector has been under some pretty significant turmoil, right? And I think from uh, from from Silvergate to to Silicon Valley to Signature, there have been questions about you know crypto's role in that. I think uh, Adrian Harris, superintendent of DFS, was very clear um, in her testimony before Congress a few weeks ago that you know the the collapse of Signature was not related to crypto. That the 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 deposits that uh, we saw in outflows from the bank were you know in proportion to the overall number of crypto deposits that the bank had, um, which was roughly twenty percent. Um, so I, I think what we're seeing with First Republic, I mean, it, it's got, it's, it's sort of an unprecedented event. It's, a, I think it's a huge deal in terms of, you know, the bank regulatory environment, the fact that the FDIC under, you know, Gruenberg allowed, uh, a GSIB to get bigger by acquiring First Republic. Um, those, I think those who may not know that's globally, uh, systemically important bank, one of the two big to fail banks here in the United States. Yes. Yes. Uh, thanks. Thanks, Ash. Uh, so that there's eight GSIBs, they're they're generally frowned upon um, by the regulators increasing in size because they're already you know quite large. So the fact that J.P. Morgan Chase is taking on um, you know all of the deposits and loans 
um, and the securities, I believe, of, of First Republic um, is a is a strong signal of what's happening. And you know, I think that. Um, let me let me just make sure I understand that point correctly. The notion here uh, that generally it's frowned upon when the GSIBs continue to grow uh, to accumulate more assets, to accumulate uh, more loans uh, and and more deposits. That's something that's generally not. Uh, smiled upon in Washington because it means these large, too-big-to-fail banks are getting bigger. And what you're saying here, if I understand you correctly, is it's an interesting signal to see J.P. Morgan, the largest bank in the United States, be green-lighted to make this acquisition. Perhaps, perhaps it suggests something about the necessity of this these assets falling into stronger hands in the view of regulators. Yeah, I mean, listen, I think since we've seen um, the the turmoil in the banking sector over the past few months, there's been a lot of discuss discussion in Washington about what are the appropriate regulations for banks of different sizes? And you all probably recall that in, I believe it was 2018, under the previous administration, there was a legislative effort to uh, tailor bank regulation based on size. And one of the things that that legislation did was it increased the asset size of banks that are subject to a number of post-crisis you know, uh, rules that apply to the largest banks. So it, it moved from about 100 billion and assets of the line of demarcation to about 250 billion. Uh, I believe that uh, First Republic was right around 225 or so. So really just under that line of having to comply with some of right. these extra steps. So Comptroller Sue at the OCC um, has been saying that, you know, regional banks need to be subject to long-term debt requirements, need to be subject to annual stress testing, because in the event of failure, they ultimately just have to go to a bank that, you know, the regulators view as already too big to fail. Um, so I think it'll, it'll be an interesting conversation um, amongst lawmakers and regulators on how to address some of this, if there need to be tweaks to the laws that were passed in 2018 that apply to the banking sector. Uh, but it's clear that, you know, over-reliance on uninsured deposits is causing, you know, a lot of problems, um, totally unrelated to, to crypto. But understanding that, you know, uh, in the case of, of Silvergate, at least, they had a high exposure to FTX. They actually were able to unwind, you know, themselves without intervention, without loss to taxpayers, without loss to depositors. Um, but now we're seeing a lot of sort of knock-on effects in the banking sector, which raises a lot of questions about, um, you know, appropriate regulation of that sector right. um, and what they sort of have on their on their requirements. Just to make one uh, point here uh, about this, before we move on to the crypto asset component of this, you mentioned this idea of uninsured deposits. One of the things that these banks shared in common uh, particularly what we saw at Silicon Valley Bank was an incredibly high skew of the proportion of assets over the FDIC limit, 250000 for individuals, 500000 for couples. Uh, when you see that skew, uh, it's a suggesting uh, that perhaps that there's going to be a challenge because there is a lack of FDIC insurance relative to the deposit base. There may be, highlighting may, be deposit flight out of those banks as people who are high net worth individuals who have those assets there have the capacity to move those assets elsewhere, which brings me to the sort of the broader picture here. The two sort of biggest factors, I think, here that are that are affecting what we've seen, uh, these bank failures and the three of the four largest in the last 60 days. Uh, number one, we obviously have this environment of rising interest rates, which has skewed some of the macroeconomic and funding conditions that bank faces. Uh, and number two uh, are these, of course, cell phones, the ability uh, to move assets to banks very quickly. Uh, Jim Bianco, in a conversation I had with him, I believe, at the end of last week, made the point uh, that when you have uh, a bank run in the 1980s or 1990s, a fast bank run happened uh, in a couple of weeks, uh, maybe over months. When a fast bank run happens here in the digital age, it happens in a matter of hours. This obviously, these factors, technology and rising rates, very much at play in the crypto world. Translate this 
for people who may not know why these factors are also factors in what's happening on the digital asset slash crypto side and how it influences crypto specifically. Yeah, I mean, you raise a, a, an excellent point. Um, the, the, the ability for a run to happen super quickly um, was not something that was contemplated by, you know, a lot of the regulations that are in place. There was a lot of discussion post, uh, I think it was um, Silvergate that, you know, they should have been subject to the liquidity coverage ratio requiring that they have, you know, enough uh, on the books for 30 days of outflows of deposits, but no one really could have contemplated you know, $40 billion in, in assets leaving um, in, in a day. Um, and, and that's exactly related to the fact that right. we can do this on our phones. We can do it so quickly. Messaging apps, things travel so quickly. Um, right. Everything is able to, to just happen in a much faster pace. I think the, the, the nexus with, with crypto is really that what we're talking about in, in crypto, in the, the sort of revolutionary technology underlying everything, is that we can do things with less intermediaries. We can do things in a more peer-to-peer -peer way with more efficiency, instantly, more transparently. Um, so I think there's a lot of opportunity for the technology to solve some of the problems that we're seeing right now in the banking sector that you know we, I think has caught everyone off guard, certainly the regulators. Hey everyone, we're gonna take a quick pause and hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So let's talk about that specifically. Regulators, legislators, the executive branch, where we stand with this now. Uh, big picture, obviously, it's been an interesting couple of months. Uh, the crypto asset and climate report coming out from the White House. Maybe the name tells you everything you need to know about that report and the way that it seems to be skewed. Uh, and also the fireworks that we've recently had on the Hill. Give us your 50,000-foot overview of a regulatory perspective happening right now in the United States specifically. Sure. So there's a lot to cover. Um, you know, I think post uh, the executive order issued by President Biden, I guess about a year ago, there was a lot of optimism. There was a lot of, um, you know, positivity around that and what would come from that and some of these reports that we would see subsequently about right, the- Give us a little a bit of context on that executive order, which ordered uh, essentially these studies, and as you mentioned, the reports to come out. Give us a little bit of context on where we were a year ago and how we've gotten to where we are today. Sure. So President Biden issued an executive order, uh, again, maybe a little over a year ago, um, instructing a number of agencies, I think it was 20-something agencies, um, to look at different aspects of crypto and blockchain technology and how we can certainly, you know, provide protections and rules, but also, you know, really harness the, the promise of the technology um, and, you know, promote innovation here in the United States. The, the tone and message of the executive order was, was really positive, I think, and it was, it was perceived as a positive approach. Um, and it was kind of, you know, the first recognition officially of the administration in the United States to say, okay, we're really going to look at crypto and how we can make it work here from a regulatory perspective um, and really, you know, utilize the technology here to kind of advance the way we do things. Um, unfortunately, what we've seen post-EO is a number of reports that have not been really reflective of the tone of the original 
um, executive order. They've been uh, much more negative on the promise of the technology and you know what needs to happen from a regulatory perspective. So I think there's been a lot of disappointment about the the individual agencies' approach to crypto. Um, you know, certainly we live in an in a post FTX environment where um, that has sort of you know put a cloud over a lot of the thinking about the way that crypto should be regulated and and how it should be able to interact with consumers and investors and what the you know rules around these companies should be. But the reality that you know folks in crypto are certainly you know well aware of, but um, it's not maybe obvious to everyone. The reality is that what FTX did and what Sam Bankman-Fried did was, you know, classic fraud, something that's been illegal for a hundred years. They took a centralized entity operating it offshore and a, and a bad actor and Sam uh, defrauded customers of their, their funds and violated his own terms of service. So, well, we should, we should point, we should point out of course, uh, that he's been charged, but not yet convicted and of course, innocent until proven guilty. Sure. Thanks, Ash. Um, good disclaimer there. Um, but but you know what he allegedly did uh, was classic fraud. It was not related to the technology of crypto, um, other than the fact that there's a lot of interest in being in the crypto space. And you know what's notable is that when Chairman Gensler testified for the first time in 18 months in front of Congress two weeks ago, and in exchange with I believe I believe it was Congressman Torres. Um, Congressman Torres was asking him about offshore exchanges and why why the SEC isn't sort of pursuing um, reining in offshore exchanges and doing something about that. Chairman Gensler acknowledged that it's a lot harder to regulate offshore exchanges from the United States and to pursue you know enforcement actions against them. He also acknowledged in the same exchange that Americans are using offshore exchanges whether they're supposed to be or not. And we know from you know the sort of postmortem on FTX that there were Americans using FTX.com. Um, the Bahamas-based exchange where they, they weren't supposed to have accounts, but they had VPNs and they were doing it. So where, where this leads us back to where we sort of have a, um, a misalignment of, um, I think, fundamental understanding of where we are with, with Chairman Gensler and with the SEC is that we want to keep crypto in the United States because we want the innovation to be here. We want the job creation to be here. We want the economic growth. We want to, you know, as the United States continue to have, um, you know, the, the the position that we have in the global financial system, um, but we also want it to be within our regulatory perimeter. We want our regulators to be able to thoughtfully establish uh, consumer protections, investor protections, rules of the road, both for transparency and clarity for the industry, and also so that consumers have the confidence um, to adopt the technology. But we yeah. want that to be done here, and unfortunately, it seems like. There are those in this administration that are just happy for it to go offshore. Um, and we think that's, you know, incredibly misguided. We look at what we're seeing now with chip manufacturing, where, you know, we're sort of desperate to bring chip manufacturing back to the United States after it was offshored, you know, 30 years ago, along with many things um, in sort of a, an offshoring of manufacturing. But well, we realize the difference with, with, with chip manufacturing is that it's incredibly expensive. It requires a tremendous amount of investment, tremendous amount of foresight. Uh, the goal here uh, to establish more of a crypto-friendly regulatory environment in the United States would just require legislation uh, and a framework uh, from either the executive branch or from Congress or ultimately from the courts if in the event that it should wind up there. But give us a sense of what you think the forward trajectory is. You've done a great uh, analysis in terms of the layout of where we stand. Where do you think we are along that path? And what are the probabilities of us getting to a place where you see a favorable outcome? 
Well, you mentioned the courts and, you know, unfortunately, I, I think we're in a position right now where a lot of these um, decisions may be left to the courts and the silver lining there may be that it does create some clarity for crypto and allow, you know, companies operating in the United States and wanting to operate in the United States to have some type of transparency and clarity to stay here and continue to develop here. But that takes time. That's not something yeah. that happens. Um, even this Congress uh, going. Fred, I'm going to go back and just ask you to explain this uh, to people who do not uh, have legislative affairs or legal backgrounds. Give us the framework of understanding for the relationship between Congress, which makes laws, the executive branch, uh, which executes them through a series of agencies, uh, and the courts, because there really are three separate trajectories here through which things get done in terms of policy uh, in the United States. Yeah, you know, three branches of government. Um, so the situation we're in right now is that the SEC obviously says that you know most crypto assets, according to Chairman Gensler, everything other than Bitcoin uh, are securities and they should be subject to existing securities laws. Those securities laws were designed you know, 90 years ago for the most part, before we could have contemplated the internet, much less the way that technology has developed over time and, and, and the opportunities with, with blockchain technology and with crypto. Um, so we can come back to sort of why those laws just don't work for, for crypto. Um, but the SEC under Chairman Gensler continued to say, just comply with these laws, there's no, uh, you, there's no problem except that uh, you, you're not willing to comply. There's not a clarity problem. Um, of course, you know, Coinbase is kind of the most uh, famous uh, example right now in the headlines. Coinbase is a member of the Crypto Council. Um, they were served a Wells notice basically saying that, you know, uh, almost every aspect of your business is in violation of securities laws. Which is interesting uh, but, because they just filed an S one when they went public uh, not that long ago, uh, which right, detailed just a few days before Chairman Gensler was sworn in, I believe. <laughs> yeah, and which detailed uh, effectively their their business plans uh, and their obvious reliance on the digital asset cryptocurrency space. So it shouldn't have come as a surprise to anyone. It should not have come as a surprise because that was certainly a signal to investors that the SEC was not going to raise a red flag uh, with these you know core elements of of their business. Staking, for example, was mentioned you know, numerous times in their S1, uh, their change business being, yep. you know, their biggest source of, of revenue, their wallet business, all of these things are now apparently, uh, you know, in violation, according to the SEC of securities laws. So Coinbase disagrees with that. Coinbase announced, I believe, um, last week that they are suing the SEC for them to, um, you know, take up their petition to do a rulemaking on crypto. So where this leads us is that this, this agency and the executive branch is saying, you know, we have the authority that we need. We have the existing authority based on these laws that were passed by Congress, and you have to comply with them. Um, Coinbase, as the example, the industry is saying those laws don't apply to us. Uh, so then that has to go to the judicial branch, to the courts, um, for them to decide, you know, who's right in that scenario. Um, and that takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of time, a lot of resources. Um, it would be, you know, certainly preferable for legislation to be passed in the shorter term that clarifies a lot of this. We know that there are a number of, uh, you know, really champions of the industry across the political spectrum. You know, those that really are just focused on the innovative, the, the innovation aspects and the opportunities for, you know, for our economy and for the financial system. Um, and then there are those that are are concerned primarily about consumer and investor protection, and they recognize that 
this is a, a technology and an industry that consumers are interested in being a part of and that they want to utilize. And that if that's the case, then we need to put, you know, appropriate guardrails and rules around it. Well, let um, me ask you this to get back to the points that you made uh, about Chair Gensler and SEC uh, and the administration. Uh, for folks who don't know, explain the relationship uh, between the SEC uh, and the presidency specifically. To what extent these views are the views of Mr. Gensler specifically and to what extent they are broadly reflective of the views of the administration? Well, that's a very that's a very complicated question. Um, I think largely we see a lot of Chairman Gensler's personal views. I think that the administration has a lot of different views within it. Um, you know, there are certainly folks within the administration that uh, I believe want to, you know, be more constructive around crypto regulation. I mean, you know, the CFTC, for example, under Chairman Benham, um, he has, a, I think, a, a much more constructive approach to trying to bring crypto under you know the regulatory purview of his agency um and and he wants to do that in a way that you know does not stifle innovation but also does provide uh the badly needed consumer protections so i, I don't think that the industry uh, or that the administration necessarily all has the exact same view i think that um chairman gensler as an, as an individual has a particularly um, crypto skeptical view and, and, and I think unfortunately a misguided way of even of even sort of dealing with that skepticism because offshoring it for you know other jurisdictions um, to determine the best way to, to regulate um, and to allow the industry to develop is, is not helpful to um, American consumers, investors or to you know our position in the global financial system. Hey everyone, we're gonna take another quick break and hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back to the Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. So what are the odds uh, in your view of us getting legislative uh, progress here during the 118th Congress here in 2023? Is it something that you handicap as a high or low probability and why? So it's it's hard to attach uh, an exact probability to this. Where it, crypto is very unique in that it en enjoys really broad bipartisan support. Um, crypto is unique in that we're asking for regulation. You often see industries in the United States going to the government and saying, "Please regulate us less. We need less bureaucracy. We need less red tape." And in crypto's case, we're saying we need we need a regulatory framework, and and we're not even into the details yet of what that looks like. We just need a regulatory framework um for all the reasons we've discussed so we've seen a ton of activity in the house um in the past couple of weeks and we're going to see a lot more over the coming weeks um in the house financial services committee also in the house agriculture committee uh you know chairman Ginsburg testified in the financial services committee they had a, a a hearing on stable coins they had a hearing on market structure um the house ag committee had a, a similar hearing on market structure at the exact same time addressing sort of their respective jurisdiction of the CFTC and and you know the the idea that the CFTC should have um, authority to regulate spot markets beyond just uh, their fraud and manipulation authority that they have right now. So we know that there's a lot of um, activity. There's a lot of work being done to work on legislation. Congress is a very deliberative body. The Senate is the most deliberative body maybe ever. Right. So uh, getting something across the finish line. There's a there's a lot of steps between now and being signed into law by the president, of course, mm -hmm. after um, passing both chambers. The Senate is complicated by the fact that we have Chairman Brown at the head of the Senate Banking Committee. 
um, who, you know, for, for a period of time was seemed very uninterested in doing any sort of legislation around crypto. He has since then signaled that he would be interested in legislation, um, but it's hard to see how he would get on sort of the same page as the other more pragmatic members that are that are wanting to work in the crypto space, because we could definitely label him as a strong crypto skeptic. Um, so, you know, I think at this point we're doing the work with with members of Congress and, and with the agencies to educate them on the benefits of the technology and the industry and why regulation is so badly needed, uh, regardless of really how you think about crypto, regulation is needed in the United States. Um, and we're confident that there's there's a lot of folks who are going to sort of um, continue to put pen to paper to try to come up with with good good rules and regulations that can get bipartisan support. Right. Um, but I don't want to suggest that there aren't a lot of challenges politically and from a process perspective between you know now and the end of this year or the end of this Congress. Well, let me ask you a question about the word that you just used there. And I want to play a bit of devil's advocate there. Uh, you know, this idea, whenever we have someone on from an advocacy group or a lobbying group, they always uh, begin the conversation by saying that this is a bipartisan issue. Uh, and they mentioned, for example, as you mentioned earlier, Congressman Richie Torres from here in New York, uh, a young progressive uh, Democrat who is uh, quite friendly toward crypto. To what extent is this really bipartisan? Uh, because looking at this from the outside, it's hard to see uh, that there isn't a significant skew uh, in a partisan direction on this issue. Uh, do you have a sense of where we are in terms of proportions in the House or the Senate of opposition versus support for this issue? Look, I think it continues to be very bipartisan. And, you know, candidly, I think post FTX, there was a lot of concern about what that would mean for some of the the folks that have wanted to be, you know, really constructive with the industry um, in Congress. And, and I don't think that they've wavered. You know, we've seen a number of pieces of legislation with really strong bipartisan support. Well, Ms. Gillibrand, you know, they're going to be reintroducing their bill. They've indicated that it's going to have stronger consumer protection, stronger cybersecurity. That bill, um, as your you know, listeners, I'm sure know, um, is really sort of a comprehensive regulatory framework that it would establish addressing, you know, securities, commodities, stable coins, consumer protections, disclosures, really, you know, all of the big pieces um, that the industry needs. Um, you know, that's moving forward. Um, you mentioned Congressman Torres. There, there are there are a number of lawmakers who continue to believe that the technology um, really has the potential to bring more folks into the financial system, to reduce costs, to increase access, um, to increase efficiency. You know, a lot of that is really um, indisputable. So, right. I don't think that we've we've sort of lost that momentum from a bipartisan perspective. But I mean, it's absolutely correct that there are folks on on both sides of the aisle. Um, who are much more skeptical and are not convinced yet of the the promise of the tech. Um, but, you know, their colleagues are, are continuing to work with them as are folks from industry. So, you know, it's it's not going to be an instant solution. But I think over the coming months and, and certainly over the coming years, um, you know, the 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 technology will prevail, I think, in, in showing right. it's it's used to folks and and ultimately um, lawmakers will, will get in line. One thing we've touched on in a glancing way here uh, is what's happening through the courts uh, right now. Give us a sense of what your sense is about the judicial branch, what the cases are that are working their way through. Uh, some particularly important cases, of course, the Ripple case, which is seen as a bellwether in many ways. What do you think about the judicial aspect of this story? Yeah, well, I mean, look, as we've kind of covered, this is with absent sort of uh, a formal rulemaking process by the SEC and other agencies, absent legislation by Congress, 
then you know the decisions by the courts are going to uh, really establish the you know the, the the case law that's going to determine how some of this is able to operate and what the you know parameters are for industries and for companies wanting to be in the space. Um, but it takes a lot of time. It's a very complicated, drawn out process. You know, Ripple, of course, being a very high profile case that um, has been ongoing for for quite some time, and um, you know the the decisions coming down from that are going to have you know big consequences. Uh, Coinbase now, you know, moving forward with their lawsuit and, and still waiting for, as far as I know, um, you know, the, the official enforcement actions from the SEC uh, after the Wells notice that they received recently. Um, there's, there's a lot of hope, I think, amongst industry that some of these companies that have the resources to really go through this long court process, um, that it will ultimately be, you know, sort of a silver lining for the industry because it will um, establish some of the rules that are needed and and hopefully allow the companies to develop here and, and not to right. entirely offshore. But in the meantime, we do risk um, folks leaving. You know, Coinbase has announced that they have an exchange license in Bermuda now and they're going to be operating there. Um, and, and we want to keep, you know, obviously as much of this innovation here in the United States as possible. Right. Brett, to exactly that point, what are the risks here if we get this collectively wrong? The risks are huge. Um, you know, the risk of offshoring the technology has has huge implications. I think from a national security perspective, our ability to sort of control the levers of the financial system and enforce sanctions like we've been able to do for so long. Um, if this becomes, you know, a bigger part of um, the way, you know, financial transactions are conducted. Um, economic security, of course, we want the innovation here and the development here. We want the job creation here. We want the economic growth here. Um, and then just being able to sort of protect, you know, U.S. consumers and investors by having them, you know, operate here with companies domiciled in the United States. Going back to what Chairman Gensler said when he testified before Congress recently, that it's a lot harder to deal with offshore exchanges and we know Americans are using them. Um, that's not what we want. We want to bring it into the regulatory uh, purview of the U.S. So, you know, and, and we kind of touched on on chip manufacturing. We now we've now realized that having semiconductors all manufactured offshore, you know, most of which are are done in Taiwan. We realized yeah. through the pandemic certainly that um, our reliance on on chips is huge, and not having that here in the U.S. Yeah. is a big problem. And it's a 25-year um, policy reversal with just-in-time uh, inventory moving. Uh, obviously, as we've seen these key vulnerabilities, when you have that kind of fragility in markets. Brett Quick, spectacularly knowledgeable about this topic. Final thoughts, key takeaways. We've got about 30 seconds left that you'd like to leave our viewers with. Look, I mean, the time is now to get something done. We have a sort of once-in-a-generation opportunity to really harness the technology and the industry here in the U.S. Um, we're, we're working tirelessly around the clock with, with lawmakers and stakeholders to you know, educate folks on what can be done here the importance of keeping it in the United States. We're really optimistic that we do have, you know, a lot of supporters and a lot of champions who recognize um, the potential and and the benefits of the tech and how important it is to establish a regulatory framework. But it's it's hard work and it's not it's not quick. Um, so we'll keep it up and and anything that anyone can do to to weigh in and make their stories heard and their experience with crypto and their use cases super helpful to the effort. Brett, thanks so much for joining us. I'm sure our viewers and our listeners who are listening to this as a podcast have learned a great deal. I hope you'll come back and join us again. Thanks, Ash. Really appreciate it. Enjoy the discussion.
That's it for today. Remember to go to Real Vision Crypto to sign up. It's free. It's at realvision.com forward slash crypto. That's realvision.com forward slash crypto. We've got some stellar guests lined up for the rest of this week. Yuri Kolodani from Starkware, Chris Sullivan from Hyperion Decimus, and of course, Paul Gruwal, Chief Legal Officer at Coinbase. You will not want to miss that. Thank you for listening. Thank you for watching. Join us at 9 a.m. Pacific time, noon Eastern, or 5 p.m. if you're in London. Thanks again for watching, everybody. Have a great afternoon. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. 